Hello, right-minded listeners. I just want to thank the Miami Book Fair for all of the fantastic authors they have uh, rounded up for us to to talk with on right-minded. Sarah Manguzo, Steve Allman, David Yoon, Angie Cruz, and Jochito Gonzalez are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for the Miami Book Fair 2022, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They are all gathering on right-minded as well. Thanks to the folks at the Miami Book Fair. And, and you know, they, along with Patty Smith, Chef Ken Corbin, Zibby Owens, Moshe Safdie, Ross Gay, Stacey Schiff, are, are, are looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everybody in person, but also in recorded conversations. So be sure to listen in. Uh, for more information, go to Miami Book Fair or follow MBF at, at Miami Book Fair. Hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. I bet you could just Google Miami Book Fair and find out all of this information. So tune in and a big thanks to the Miami Book Fair. Hello, listeners, period. Grant, this week we have a show about not wasting words. And so I'm entering into this conversation with some awareness about intention uh, and about making words matter. And the reason that we're doing this, as always, is because of our guest. And we have Sarah Manguso on today. And Sarah's been called a virtuoso. She's known for her spareness and words used to describe her work uh, are words like spare, compact, minimalist, succinct, and slim. And Grant, I know that you're a fan of Sarah's previous books because I drove up to your house this week to pick up a few of those slim volumes that you left hanging for me on your fence. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that. Definitely worth the suspicious eyes from your neighbors to get my hands on those in preparation for today. Uh, But, you know, reading... Sarah, and listening to the audiobook of her most recent novel, Very Cold People, my first impression was that she's the very essence of a literary writer, uh, and that that's very on trend, the way she writes with a particular kind of literary style. And since you're more of a watcher and an insider on, you know, what's trending in literary circles, I want to turn this back to you and ask you, you know, uh, I felt like her work feels very attuned to language, descriptions, evoking emotion, uh, and that the story, the plot maybe is kind of secondary. So is is that accurate? I mean, am I right in that kind of evaluation? Yeah, I, I don't think plot, or at least plot as it's conventionally defined, is, is, a, is a primary concern for her. And just so listeners know, the two books that I've read by Sarah that Brooke mentioned are 300 Arguments and Ongoingness, The End of a Diary, and both of these books physically feel about as big as one of those little notebooks that you can keep in your back pocket. And each page is a sentence or a short paragraph or two. And you're, you're certainly not reading for action because each page is a moment or a thought or a realization. And this isn't to say that there isn't tension or an escalation of emotion or an acceleration. You know, there is, but it just takes a different form than the more conventional action and suspense that we're used to. And you're right, Sarah is the very essence of a literary writer. Sometimes saying that can be forbidding, though. And, and what's interesting about Sarah is how accessible and readable she is, at least for me. Uh, she's definitely a writer of ideas, but they're the ideas that are very much part of the fabric of life to the extent that I think of her as an emotional writer and a very personal and a very intellectual writer. And I just want to note that her, her spare style makes her books seem like they're easy to write or they can do that. But as, but as one who's written in this style, it actually brings on a whole different kind of, of narrative challenges. 
Oh my gosh, I can see that for sure. I mean, I one of the things I love about her work uh, and her style is the prose. I mean, her choice of language is just not something that's easy to do if you're a word lover and someone who marvels at language and how sentences are strung together, then she will be the kind of writer who totally wows you. Um, her descriptions are really evocative and full of imagery and all the sensory details that writers are supposed to pay attention to. But I know this very well. You know, they often and fall short. And it does seem counterintuitive to be saying, Grant, because we have an episode on not wasting words. Um, but I'm curious about, you know, like how do writers achieve this feat of being super descriptive, which, like I said, it feels counterintuitive, but, you know, while still being spare. Yeah, that's such a great question, Brooke, and one that deserves a, a lifetime of study, I think. And I'm, I'm tempted to say, buy my book, The Art of Brevity, which comes out in <laughs> early 2023 for the answer, because that book is my answer to that question in so many ways. Yes, pre-order. <laughs> yeah. But I think the short answer is to think about the word evocative. Um, ask yourself how words evoke emotions on the page. Uh, Sarah's brilliance is in, the, in, in part the way that she uses omission and the literal white space on the page to create a conversation with the reader. Uh, this style of writing requires that you trust the reader to, to fill in the gaps or to be an imaginative partner or collaborator in the narrative rather than, uh, you know, a story where the author tells the reader everything or tries to tell so much. And it's a type of prose poetry, I think, and it's, it's a daring style. When I read Sarah or, or Lydia Davis, whose stories are sometimes as short as a single sentence, I sometimes wonder, you know, how they got anyone to publish that because because writing in the style they do requires your reader to get what you're doing and buy into it. But there's a long tradition of writing, you know, for the essence, uh, to put another kind of uh, phrase around it in American literature. And uh, in many ways, practicing an extreme version of Hemingway's well-known rule of omission, he said that a story should be like an iceberg. Only 10% of it should show above the surface of the water. And in Sarah's case, I think only only 1% often shows. But I love the art of writing for the essence. I love the mystery of it. Uh, life for me is largely a matter of what's left out, what's unspoken, what's hinted at. And this is a private and intimate style of writing, which I like, but I know it's not for everyone. I think think of people who, who look at modern abstract art and say, a monkey could do that. And, and maybe those people say the same thing about this style of writing. It's not for them, maybe, but it, it is for me. It's incredibly complex. And so I wonder what you think about this style of writing when you read Sarah Brooke, and, and do you read with a preference for style? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it, I know that this quote is often uh, attributed to Mark Twain, and I don't know if it's true because uh, people have given it to others as well. But when he said, um, I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. Mm. And it's that kind of thing. You know, it's like, yeah, it's it's a lot easier to be wordy. Um, and so I guess when I think about this style, that's what I think, you know, is this idea. And Sarah is going to speak to this in today's interview, you know, the boiling down to the essence. And I think that all writers can learn from reading that style. Um, when it comes to my reading habits, I, I definitely like all styles. And I think it's it's in the delivery. You know, I mean, I marvel at a writer like Sarah's attention to detail and reading her, you know, I kind of felt like she has this magical power to stop time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like that's really what it felt like, you know, that she's conjuring up the descriptiveness of a given moment and her character in her new book, Ruthie is moving through time, but she's also being observed through Sarah's eyes in such a hyper acute way. And 
you know, now that we've done the interview grant um, <laughs> in advance, I think it sort of colors what we were going to talk about, you know, this um, review that we read in the New York Times about ongoingness, um, you know, and the reviewer said that uh, there was a sense that Sarah feels things more deeply than most people. And we're going to hear from Sarah that she, in fact, really disdained that review. But, you know, whether, regardless of, you know, the intention behind that review being misogynistic or problematic in a lot of ways. And I think Sarah makes a, a very good case for that being so. Even still, that line made me think, you know, about people who are predisposed to feel more deeply and that maybe those people become writers. And I'm curious, Grant, you know, do you ascribe any, any importance to that observation? Is it possible, probable that someone who feels more deeply, more profoundly has a more acute sense of any given moment and its meaning? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about this as a reason one reads her, but 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 that is part of the attraction for me. Um, you know, as a reader, I, 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 I'm reading for how she feels things more deeply or just feels things differently. And, and as she put it, I, I think it's really about her just being attuned to those moments and finding life meaning in them and trying to capture them. And, and by doing that, she develops a trust and credibility and intrigue as an author in this way. I think she also makes herself vulnerable on the page. And she, she, she's not a confessional author by any means, but she's exploring herself in such an interior way that, yeah, I think you, you get this like closeness uh, while reading her. She has such an art to her revelation that it feels private. And I, I'm very personally uh, very much in this camp of writing. I don't, I don't know if I feel more deeply than other people, but I'm interested in capturing those acute moments of life, you know, which can be so simple. And so without any of the usual drama of what we think makes for a story. Um, and, and that's one other thing that's interesting about Sarah. In, in, in Ongoingness, her book about keeping a diary, for example, the drama is an inquiry into her, her, her lifetime obsession with recording her life. And, and re 300 Arguments is a collection of, of intense uh, aphorisms. And, and this is one reason I'm attached to the aesthetic of brevity, because it, it allows for these tinier, but perhaps more intense moments to be explored. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like what you just said about intense moments. Um, it just, that's it. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's like, and she says that her, her work, her process is built on intense moments, right? Of memory, little snippets. Um, I, I feel like I certainly, I experience moments like these, but I don't live this way. I know that for sure. And, um, I don't know if you remember that movie, Grant, as good as it gets, uh, with Helen mm -hmm. Hunt. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Nicholson. It was from the late nineties. But this is just always stuck with me. There's this moment in the film when Greg Kinnear's character is sketching Helen Hunt in the bathtub, just the arc of her back, and he's overcome, you know, by just this moment of beauty. And it's so well done in the film because he's gay and Helen is pretty, but not to the level of being stunning. So it's just about this moment, you know, of of his just complete overwhelm um, in a beautiful moment. Um, and I, I've always thought about that captured moment in film because I'm sure that everybody has moments like that, you know, just moments of being touched by everyday beauty, but also being touched by everyday 
ugliness. You know, I mean, we're so much beauty in our humanity, but on the flip side, of course, our capacity for hate and criticism and tribalism. So I don't know, I think a writer like Sarah, that maybe she's seeing those kinds of moments more often, <laughs> you know, absor absorbing the beauty and the ugly. And, um, you know, th there's the matter, of course, of how do you put that into words, those experiences, you know, in a way that's not too precious, not too heavy handed, and then frankly, not too boring. And I think that's really her genius. Absolutely. You said it, Brooke, and, and that is our genius. As, as writers, sometimes uh, we want to show our writerly muscles uh, with flowery flourishes, so to speak. Um, so I think it's really brave to, to work without them and, and essentially, you know, tell, tell the story with, with omission and simplicity. But then, as you said, preciousness, it can be a danger and being boring can be a danger as well. Um, I think you have to think of this writing like a type of Zen Cohen or a haiku. A haiku is such a simple and accessible form, but it's also so hard to write a good haiku. It takes a lifetime of, of reading and practice to capture that perfect pace and rhythm and word choice, you know, to know how to write to the breath and to, to evoke rather than tell. Yeah, my goodness, definitely. And, you know, I don't want this episode to necessarily be a plug for spare writing. I do want to say that some writing needs to be less spare, you know, needs to sop up the words like a day old baguette absorbs a plate of olive oil and balsamic. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, there's a case for wasting words, too. It's all in the eye of the beholder, I think. These are aesthetic choices. And, and I always say that an aesthetic isn't just about the beauty of the surface. It reflects the existential nature of the story. And some of my favorite novels are ones that are big and messy and sprawling because their subjects require layers and entanglements or a sense of things overflowing and being overwhelming. So, yeah, think about your aesthetic and how it captures, you know, what you want to capture in that story. Before we get too overwhelmed, though, with these thoughts, let's take a breather and see what Sarah has to say about all of this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. We have the great honor of having Sarah Mangusa with us today. She is a fiction writer, essayist, and poet, and author, most recently of the novel Very Cold People. Her other work includes the nonfiction books 300 Arguments, Ongoingness, The Guardians, and The Two Kinds of Decay, and a few poetry collections. Her work has been recognized by an American Academy of Arts and Letters of Literature Award. That's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> the Guggenheim Fellowship and a Hotter Fellowship and the Rome Prize. So very well decorated. Sarah is joining us from Los Angeles. And she currently teaches creative writing at Antioch University. Sarah, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're absolutely thrilled. And congratulations on the new novel as well. Thank you. In 2013, I read an interview where you said, uh, the threat of being boring, of including too much might be a particular peril. Uh, you, wrote, you said that about memoir writing at the time, but I want to open this conversation with you about volume. Uh, what is too much? Is there a thing as too little? Uh, you're known for your spare writing style. And so I was wondering if you might talk to us about this ethos when it comes to unfolding words, sentences, or scenes on the page. 
Oh, yes. I love this question because I'm still trying to figure out what the essential difference is between fiction and nonfiction. Uh, And in a a recent conversation with another writer, we were, uh, somebody was postulating that the abyss of writing nonfiction, autobiographical nonfiction is the abyss of total noise. What do I include? You know, I have I have the whole universe I have to select, whereas the 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 abyss of fiction writing is total silence. Like I have to invent something. I, I have infinite choice. What what can I possibly invent? And while I really like that, I, I mean, I love the idea of there being a dialectic. It just doesn't really feel that way for me. For me, writing anything begins with memorable details. And, um, you know, typically they are sense memories or memories of a, a scrap of dialogue that I've heard or, or some, something visual that I remember or remember somebody doing. And I've never really been able to write anything top down, like from starting with a concept or, or even starting with the idea of a story or even of a character. I don't, for better or worse, I always start with a couple of details that engage me in some way and between which I feel that I can create some kind of association. And then the work builds like that detail by detail. And so writing this novel, while initially I thought, oh God, you know, I'm going to have to learn how to write in a completely different way because a novel is so different from a piece of autobiographical writing. In the end, I just did what I always did. And it was immensely comforting to see that, you know, of course, you can build a work of fiction in this way, just as you can build a work of any other genre or form. Sarah, that's so interesting. And I I have always admired your work in large part by how you bring your poet's sensibility to your prose. And I also admire how you've worked in so many different genres of writing, although as you describe it, it sounds like they're talking to each other in a lot of ways. And so I was, I was curious coming in, I mean, it's really interesting to hear you say how you build a novel through memorable details and those associations of the details. And, and I, I always think that for my tastes, at least, uh, the kind of plot aspects of a novel are sometimes overemphasized. So, you know, I read for, for details, like you say, and tone and mood, but a novel, I think, still has to have a sense of escalation of building. How, how do you approach that in, in, in writing a novel, like in doing it in this unconventional way? You know, I don't know how unconventional it really is. Um, first, I have to say that I love that new way of describing the momentum of a book because, you know, every book needs some kind of forward momentum. It's not always plot, even when there is a story. So that's, it's deeply comforting to me to just think about it in terms of how, how things escalate or accelerate or how the uh, emotional, you know, amplitude grows as the, as you go page by page and, um, you know, I, w- I wish I could say that I had an idea of what was going to happen in the book and that I had an idea of the order in which things would happen. But I, I really, I have to confess that I just, I put it together really intuitively. And I, um, I mean, that's not really completely accurate. I mean, I have to, you know, it's, it's, it's told chronologically. Um, the protagonist is older 
at the end of the book than she is in the beginning. And she ages at a relatively steady pace. We go grade by grade through school. She and her friends uh, have, you know, appropriate, like age appropriate conflicts, questions, and confusions in elementary school, middle school, and then high school. And um, a lot of these are just kind of elemental uh, experiences that people have as they go through these years. I I also did, um, you know, and this this again is not really a, um, it, it, it's almost like a nonverbal awareness of one of the effects that I wanted to try to strike in the book. But I guess I wanted the density of questions and fears and little little traumas to increase as time went on. But I wanted that to happen in such a way, not that the reader would think, oh, things are getting worse for these girls as time goes on. But um, instead, I wanted the reader to think, oh, this is exactly the density of trouble that these girls are navigating and always have and always will. But when they were younger, they just didn't really know to label it as such. When when they're little and this is their default experience, it feels neutral because they just don't know that they're not, um, you know, if they were luckier or safer, they would not have to uh, navigate all of this. So that's one of the ways uh, I wanted to give some sense of crescendo or acceleration as the girls reach the end of the book. Um, and I also knew that I wanted some sense of finality to each of the characters' lives within the context of the book, Um you know, and I and I wanted I wanted to present them as neutrally as possible, even though some of them die, some of them are you know terribly abused, tormented. One of my goals of the book was to present all of these so-called or you know all of these um, tragedies as neutrally as I could because. As I, you know, ultimately concluded, the point of this book is not is not to kind of isolate a story of trauma and say, look at this terrible thing that happened. the The purpose of the book, the narrative purpose of the book, was to say, look at this veritable cornucopia of trauma. This is what was, and for many, is simply the neutral background of life. Well, well executed. <laughs> it, it definitely hits that note. And, you know, I read probably every review on Goodreads just out of curiosity <laughs> to see oh, what wow. people thought um, after I read it myself um, for Very Cold People. And, you know, a lot of readers felt that the book reads like a memoir. And I'm curious your thoughts about that. You know, is it inevitable with fiction these days if you choose to write in the first person? And yet it's interesting because many readers also commented on how distant the narrative voice is. And I also think that one of the hallmarks of good memoir is intimacy. And so I was just curious um, on your take and whether you considered at any point writing Ruthie's character in the third person. Well, I, sh you know, I'm going to have to take you back to the very early days of the manuscript. Initially, I wanted to write a book about the character of Winifred, 
um, she is loosely based on somebody who did live in my town. And I just was, I was interested in writing a book that wasn't about myself for one thing. And I was interested in writing a book that, you know, even if it, even if it were presented as fiction, nobody could immediately map me onto the protagonist and say, oh, well, this is just another memoir. She's just calling it fiction this time. And so I really, I really wrote everything that I could about Winifred and I, you know, I imagined and I, I invented and I did all of the things that I thought, you know, a responsible fiction writer would do. And I wound up with about 25 pages and then I was so done with it. I just, I had no interest in it. And then I worked on other things and then the, you know, the, the really, the biggest breakthrough in, in, in writing very cold people was the breakthrough that Winifred, you know, she never really seemed real to me. Like it, it always seemed like some hokey, you know, I could do like a little, uh, you know, historical fiction story with gas lights and, you know, little like, in it, but it just seemed a little bit too much like masterpiece theater. And so when I realized that Winifred just wasn't really ever able to shed this sort of fake sheen over her and her character and her environment, I thought, oh, you know, another character could just invent her. Like she could, she doesn't have to be real in order for her to be really, truly important to a, to, to a story. And that's how Ruthie came on the scene. And, and yes. And so Ruthie is the approximate, approximately my age she grows up in a town that's very much like the town in Massachusetts where I grew up. And, and so, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I haven't really, I haven't spent any time with the Goodreads reviews. I've, um, you know. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't recommend uh, it. Yeah, no, I know. This isn't my first rodeo. So I, I know where to look and where not to look on the internet now when a book comes out. But, um, but I'm actually fascinated by the comment that this book seems like a memoir because I don't know what the difference is. I don't like now that I've, I've written a novel. I'm almost done with my next novel. I like, I really don't understand what designates something a memoir as opposed to a novel. And I know that sounds, that sounds, um, I don't know, facile. Well, maybe if you're bringing your personal, your personal background to it, but yeah, I mean, in terms of style and, you know, actual writing, I think that's a good question if you choose for your protagonist to be first person. Yeah. I mean, beyond, beyond, but, but I, but it doesn't sound as if these readers were saying, you know, we, any first person narrated piece of fiction is suspect and is probably just a memoir. Hmm. What what other what other qualities render something memoir like as opposed to fiction like? It's interesting how readers project that. I think, um, you know, like Ocean Vuong's last novel, right? Which I don't know if he ever called it autofiction, but I thought it is autofiction actually that he has said so. Has he? I didn't know that, but um, I mean. You know, I was one of those readers that did project that, but I, I'm not sure that that was right. And I try to hold back those projections, I guess, because if it's called fiction, I try to treat it as that. You know, the great Sheila Hetty uh, has recently said, it's all autofiction. 
<laughs> it doesn't, it. You, you can't write without your essential human experience. I mean, if you're writing about human characters, even if you're not writing about human characters, your, your, you know, your experience as a human is going to find its way in some form into the book. And sure, if you call yourself Sheila in the book, or you know, if I if I had called myself Sarah Manguso in the book instead of inventing a character named Ruthie, um, then it would make things clearer for people. But but I still, yeah, I really just want to keep putting pressure on that accusation and find out what, in fact, really are the qualities that render something memoir-like, because like, I truly do not know. Well, Sarah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back a little bit to your opening metaphor about the abyss of nonfiction is the the noise, and then the abyss of fiction is the silence, and and so I guess I'm I'm curious about how you deal with that silence as a writer, how you fill the blank page, especially since your prose is so poetic. Are you someone who who fast drafts your way through a novel, or are you meticulously thinking about it like sentence by sentence as you write it? I have to confess that I'm really interested in the word poetic and what what it actually means in this context. You know what what I can bring in my you know by way of understanding of of that word is that I began as a poet or as you know somebody who was identifying as a poet because I couldn't imagine writing more than a page ever for anything. Like I, I just I just did not think I had. That, that many thoughts or that many words to devote to any piece of writing. And in the beginning, I didn't. And so if you wrote like that, then you're a poet because poems are short and stories are, you know, as everybody knows, three to 8,000 words. And, you know, full length novels, as everybody knows, are, you know, at least 50,000 words, maybe going up to into the hundreds. And then my uh, my education and my awareness of of those differences blurred and changed and complexified, and I realized that you could write a story that's two hundred words long and it could be a really good story. And um, in fact, my um, after I published my initial poetry collections, my very next book was a story collection. And all of the stories are approximately 200 words, which is like a fairly short paragraph. And I loved writing that. And I loved just boiling down the, the very essence of what I thought a story needed in order to actually be a story. And it really, it really was some, um, you know, as I thought of it, then I was, I, I wrote this book in 2005. Uh, as I thought of it, then I just, I needed some, you know, witness to, or gesture toward a climax. And the way that I thought about climax was, was very loosey goosey. And it, it didn't, it didn't have to be, it could be completely internally uh, experienced by a character or it could, it could be something that was purely visual or it was, you know, we could, there were, there were many different kinds of climaxes, but yeah, I mean, the adjective poetic definitely cl- has clung to my work for years. And I don't, I don't think it's a bad word. Um, I don't think it's a particularly descriptive word in the way that it's, usually trotted out. I mean, it's usually trotted out to mean this person used to publish poems, <laughs> you know, and, uh, or this, or this person writes books that are shorter than, uh, you know, the average book or, 
Yeah. Or this person uses white space on the page. And I don't, yeah, I mean, I think there are enough different kinds of poetry and enough different kinds of prose that we, we don't really have to use the word poetic to describe work that looks like that anymore. Um, but I think, you know, by Grant, I mean, the essential thing that you're asking me about is the shortness and density of the prose that I write. And yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it really, I write the way that I do because, um, it brings me pleasure to boil things down into their smallest and most essential form. And that that's really it. It's not, it's not like I, I, you know, I, I feel like I want to make something that looks that way or um, it's nothing about the choices that I'm making are intellectual. It's all, it's all rooted in what feels good. It's very, it's pleasurable and comforting and calming and, um, you know, even cathartic to boil down a large amount of information of various kinds to a much smaller uh, form. You know, I and, and you know, and, and so that, you know, in, in knowing that, I think you can probably say smart things about every single one of my books, like you know, 300 arguments. Oh, okay. That was Sarah only doing that. There's no, there, you know, whatever gesture there is toward plot or character or anything else is really sacrificed at the, um, uh, what is the thing where you make sacrifices on altar? altar. (laughs) There it is. Um, yeah, it's really sacrificed at the altar of this, uh, obsessive boiling down, like what, you know, what if you could boil down an entire book to a sentence or to three sentences and, um, you know, and that, and that book, that book sort of burned that need out of me in a way that, that was useful later on because I became able to write longer. Um, but, um, you know, it, it always just returns to my, um, you know, the pleasure that I feel when I boil things down to a, a workable size. Well, I appreciate you letting us poke and prod a little bit, because I think one of the things when you start to read about you and your work, people are obviously trying to categorize what you're doing. And I think there's a little bit of like an awe slash criticism thing going on that is reserved for writers of literary fiction. Um, And I'm really curious about it from the female perspective. You know, I mean, I've long been obviously a champion of women writers, but also acutely aware of the way that women get criticized. And so, you know, when you're talking about that pressure testing, like, why are you getting criticized for, you know, seemingly writing a memoir? I think part of that has to do with being a woman writer and how much people, you know, press into you like, oh, well, it must be her real life. And so I wanted to ask you a question about this, because some of the characterizations of the work remind me of, um, you know, like we've interviewed Amir McBride and Rachel Cusk and other literary writers, you know, where readers will say things like, oh, well, it's solipsistic, or you get a fair amount of disdain from reviewers who are like I said, also in awe of you. <laughs> and so um, I realize there's a question to be asked here about how that feels on a personal level, but I'm actually much more curious to know what you make of this on a macro social level. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I th- Sally Rooney has spoken about this at length much more intelligently than I think I can off the cuff right now. 
Um, but in an interview after her first or second novel was published, she addressed this accusation that she felt she was fielding from all corners, which is, um, you just wrote down what happened to you. That's not literature. And she said, even if I had, and, and this isn't a direct quote, but she said, even if I had, I still had to write it. You know, it's not just, it's not just like typing an extra long email. I mean, there, there is craft that comes into it. And um, I, um, I don't know, did Philip Roth uh, receive this, this flavor of criticism when he began writing about Newark or when he began writing novels uh, about somebody growing up and living in Newark who could not but be Philip Roth? Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was, I was younger then and I was, I was naive and I didn't, I didn't really study book criticism in the way that I do now, particularly through a, um, the, you know, a gendered and, uh, a, a, well, mostly gendered lens. In my case, I'm a white woman. I don't get victimized because of my race, but, you know, I do very much, um, run into people, uh, who write criticism who want to demean my work because it is about things that are, uh, you know, strictly, uh, those of female embodied experience experience. And, um, you know, I write about those things because I find them interesting. Well, they are interesting. You know, it is, it is objectively interesting to, be female and to, uh, you know, be limited to one's, you know, to be limited to any individual human experience is interesting. Like all of our, all of our perspectives are constrained by internal and external forces. We all have our unique sensibilities and like, you know, unfortunately, yeah. Like if you're, if you're a woman writing about stuff, uh, writing about being a girl, then, um, yeah. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to run into, into some horrifically, um, overt and covert misogynist criticism. But I mean, I'm just, I'm so much better at seeing it for what it is now that I never take it personally ever because it's not about me. Well, this might be an extension of this question in a way. I'm not sure, but Brooke and I were talking, uh, before you came on Sarah about, this notion that the, the New York Times reviewer of your book, Ongoingness, um, suggested that you might feel more deeply than most people, that you're more porous to everyday experiences or or what you see unfolding around you. And so I'm curious um, uh, what you, how, how you, how you um, can take a comment like that. Like, I don't know if you view yourself as feeling more deeply or just maybe being more attuned and interested in that feeling and capturing it in words. Oh, it's really interesting that you bring up that particular review because that, for me, reading that review was a real turning point in the way that I understood the reception of my books by, you know, professional critics. I saw that review as being so tragically limited by the reviewer's misogyny and total inability to conceive of my book as literature and also, you know, with that, such a crushing inability to consider my book as separate from whatever ideas he had about me, my body, my experience, my selfhood. Um, I, I found it, I found I, my primary feeling after reading that review was just pity for the reviewer because he, he, I mean, he really confessed in so many words that he was unable to evaluate the work as such that 
you know, all he could really do is sort of write out all of the received ideas that he held about who I was, what a woman writer is, what a book ought to do, and what my book sought to do. And, you know, and, and that, that review was really wrong about everything. And it was weirdly, it was sort of, it was hostile in a way that made me want to say, oh, honey, um, there's a there's a line in that review that describes my work. I'm going to try to remember how it goes, but I believe the reviewer it's Dwight Garner. I believe the I believe the reviewer said each of Manguso's books squats on a perch between poetry and prose. And when I when I read that, I thought, wow! Imagine saying a man's work squats on a perch. I mean, it, when I read that, I thought, oh, that's just a really pregnant or, um, you know, really broody bird <laughs> about to mm. just unleash her young or her eggs. And and in reading that, I thought, oh, yeah, this reviewer just thinks of me as a fertile woman. And nothing about his understanding of this work has anything to do about me as potentially having had any intellect or anything other than like gushy feeling. The whole, you know, the review culminates in him saying, uh, oh, you know, I felt better at the end because the author had a baby and that made me feel happy for her. And, um, you know, I, I, th I think this review ought to be really read and carefully considered because it just demonstrates almost all of the ways that you can fail to review a woman's work in good faith. Well, I appreciate that take. And as Grant said, I think it's an extension of that earlier question that I asked, you know, and it's, it is fascinating how these kinds of things are reserved to women writers. And I applaud you for calling it out so fiercely it's not just women writers. I mean, it's it's writers writers of all genders who aren't you know sort of uh, you know male in a specific way, mm. but definitely you know all kinds of queer writers run into right. this similar you know being being dismissed and demeaned. Well, thank you for that too. Um, uh, you know, I want to end on this question of just going back to spare writing, especially because you teach writing. And so I'm just curious, you know, if you have a particularly effusive or flowery writer in one of your classes, you know, what's the, what's the feedback? And same for the super spare minimalist writer, you know, are you trying to get people to write in a, in a range or do you really try to develop them where they are? <laughs> no, I'm not trying to create this army of writers who are, <laughs> who are all, all alike. Uh, no, that's that's not my um, teaching style at all. I teach in a low-residency MFA program, which affords me the incredible privilege of working very deeply one-on-one -on -one with all of my students. Hmm. And this is, this is my preferred modality of teaching just because of the depth with which we can go and explore each writer's, each, each one of my mentees' true sensibility. And my goal as a teacher is to enable each of my students' sensibilities to be expressed completely. And the facets of everyone's writerly sensibility or their guiding intelligence 
all add up to something unique. And yeah, some of them write long, some of them don't. Some of them are writing memoirs, some of them are writing fiction, some of them are doing various things, some of them use white. It's just, um, I think of myself more as a coach than than as a I don't know, this, this sort of old fashioned idea of the teacher is like, like, I I don't really have wisdom to impart so much as I see the kind of the half formed writer on the page. And I can sort of help propel or help speed up the process by which one of my students can become the writer that they were really born to be. Well, lucky students. <laughs> well, <Thanks>. yeah, <laughs> when, it, when, it, when it works, when I do it right, sure. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Sarah. We appreciate you being on today. Yeah, it was amazing, Sarah. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. So this trend is going to be short because it's a firsthand observation grant about Amazon, but I feel like I wanted to name it. Well, actually two things. I want to name these two things and see if any of our listeners are noticing this stuff. Um, Amazon is definitely the retail outlet most spotlighted in our trends because we interact with it so much. And so first, uh, I've noticed in the past couple of weeks that Amazon is charging above retail price for backlist books. And so um, on my side, the press, uh, she writes, press. We're trying to figure out what's going on here because I've never seen anything like this. Uh, And then the other thing is that I got automatically subscribed to like an author whose book I recently bought. But the problem is that I bought this book because James, my 11 year old, stumbled across the author on TikTok and his message and his politics are super problematic. And so I decided to buy the book for James to read it with him to help him understand some of the overt misogyny that the author is peddling. And then I got an email from Amazon telling me, thank you for liking this author. (laughs) Again, unprecedented. Uh, And so, yeah, I just wanted to bring those to our, our listeners' attention, Grant. And what do you think? Well, one, I think these algorithms that are, that are determining our identity online uh, are given given that you have me buying experimental poetry along with Captain Underpants collections. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure who they think I really am at this point, but it's, that's super troubling, though. And and you know, I worry about accidentally liking a social media post this bad just because I have clumsy thumbs. But this is much worse than that because it's taking your choice away from you. Um, you know, it's, it's it's like automatically subscribing someone to your newsletter. It's a it's a good sales tactic, maybe kind of, um, and maybe you wouldn't have minded so much if it were someone you actually liked, like Sarah Mangusso. But but still, I'm a believer in honoring another's personal choice. Yeah, totally agreed. And I, it does concern me a little bit about what books they might start to recommend to me, <laughs> given who this guy is. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I think, yeah, if I'd bought Sarah's book and gotten an email thanking me for liking her Amazon profile, I probably would have noticed. Um, but in this case, I opposite of like this TikTok guy. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to suffer through his book for the sake of educating my son about the ills of toxic masculinity. But, you know, I am curious about the auto liking thing. And I am wondering if authors are able to set this up somehow through their author central page. So it's something I'm going to look into and I shall report back. Yeah, I'll look into it too. Um, as far as selling above the price point, you said it's unprecedented, but what, what do you make of it? 
Yeah, I want to make a distinction here for people who buy from Amazon because a lot of times you will see books and other products for sale from third parties that are over the retail price. And the reason that is so is because there's a scarcity, (laughs) you know, like you can't get a trampoline, right? There's only like two in stock. So a third party seller might jack up the price, but it's unprecedented for Amazon itself to sell above retail price. And so you can tell that you're buying from Amazon's warehouse uh, or from the company itself when you look in your product window and it will say that it's coming from Amazon. And so the whole thing is charging uh, above retail price feels counter to everything Amazon has built itself to be. Like when you go to Amazon, you pretty much expect a bargain. So I just have seen in these past couple of weeks, we had three books priced at $16.95. That's the retail price. And then they're being sold by Amazon for the low $20 range. Uh, one of our reps, you know, at our distribution company speculated that maybe Amazon is trying to drive people to purchase the ebook. Uh, but I did a search online to see what I could find out about this and, um, nothing. So we're a little bit out ahead of this one and we'll report back again if we discover anything meaningful. Yeah. Thank you. Amazon, you know, I was thinking it's so built on algorithms that it makes me wonder if this is a, an experiment to see what people's purchasing habits are. Uh, hard to imagine what other factors are play, but uh, Brooke, right-minded is never algorithmic. <laughs> we handpick every single guest, as you know, and we read or listen to their books and produce all of our own content. We're not constructions of artificial intelligence, as far as we know, and, and you can get this all for well under the retail value since we're free and we're all we'll, we will always be free we'll be free next week and the week after that so so please keep listening tell your friends to listen and we'll see you soon